this blessed new day. It's another opportunity to gather in your presence. We thank you. Thank you so much that you are the kind of God that you are. Now, Lord, my prayer, as always, is that it would be all of you and none of me. You would increase as I decrease. That the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight. Oh Lord, you are my strength and you are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we give the worship team a hand this morning? How, oh, how they blessed us in song this morning. Just angelic. My goodness, thank you. So beautiful, so beautiful. And I love the diversity from one end of the spectrum to the other. And that's kind of what we do here at Hope is we try to hit it all. And so, Michael, before you walk out, awesome job this morning. Thank you from covering all of the, for covering all of that. Uh, you took me back to the country. <laughs> you took me back to the country when I was growing up in church and in the country. And then you brought me to 2020. So thank you. Yes, God bless you. And all of you who blessed us in song this morning. Um, as I said earlier, uh, you most of you know that on last week we began a new series. And where we began unpacking and looking at the vision of Bethel Bible Church overall. The overall vision of Bethel Bible Church. Uh, and that being growing communities, building leaders, and living generously. Uh, and so last week we began looking at, or we looked at, the part of the vision that talks about growing communities. And we looked at what Paul had to say about that in his letter to the church at Ephesus. And I think hopefully we got some, some encouragement from that, some instruction and some direction in that, and how important it is not to be Lone Ranger, isolated Christians, and that I need Brother Sam to be my friend. I need him to stand with me and to be by me, and I need to be able to call him in the midnight hour. Amen. I need to be able to go by John's house and sit down and have a meal with him like I have done. I need, we need that, don't we? Uh, we need to be in community together, and so that's what Paul encouraged us to do last week, and that's what we here at Bethel believe that we should be doing. Amen? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, today, today we will launch into the second part. I told you earlier that this was uh, Leadership Sunday, so today we'll look at uh, the part of our vision that talks about building leaders. Building leaders is what we'll be talking about uh, today. Uh, this particular part of the vision was selected for today for a reason. This particular part of the vision series was selected to be preached on and taught on today for a particular specific reason. Today is a special day. At the end of the sermon, we will be formally installing our new Hope Campus deacons and elders who you affirmed by vote two weeks ago. That will happen 
today at the end of the sermon. So I need your prayers. I need you to pray for me because that's going to take some time. I need you to pray for me that I'm able to get through 1 Timothy chapter 3 and still leave enough time at the end to do what we need to do because 1 Timothy chapter 3 is going to allow us and encourage us and lead us to unpack a lot. So I need you to pray with me. And you, you know what? I need, I need your amens because the more you say amen, the faster I'll go. <laughs> so I need your prayers and your amens this morning, both in person and in line, uh, online. <laughs> so we're going to do that. We're gonna, today is Leadership Sunday. We're going to install some leaders today. Uh, but let's begin this way. Let's begin by this, discussing the importance of effective leadership. Can we do that? What, what, what's the importance of effective leadership? Effective leadership brings together diverse people and helps them find common purpose. That's what effective leadership does, while at the same time inspiring and empowering them to realize their fullest potential and to then harness their potential to achieve those common goals that we've all come together for. You can really take that, 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 that description of effective leadership and apply it to any organization. We are applying it to what we do for Christ. Right. That's what effective leadership looks like. Uh, a leader, uh, uh, a leader looks like that, operates like that. Joel Baker has an interesting quote about leadership. He says this, a leader is a person you will follow to a place you would not go by yourself. And then I like what Warren G. Bennis has to say about leadership. He says this, leadership is the capacity to translate vision into reality to translate vision into reality. Leadership has certainly been defined in many eloquent and thoughtful ways over time. Many books have been written about leadership. Many quotes uh, expressed about leadership. Many definitions are out there uh, as it relates to leadership. I concur with many who have simplified this definition and have simplified it down to one word, influence. That's what leadership is when it, when it all boils down, uh, Joyce, it's influence. Influence can be positive or it can be negative. Uh, it can be effective or it can be ineffective. We will honor, recognize, and install deacons and elders today, but please don't be mistaken. Everyone here or everyone that's watching online this morning is a leader. Because God has given us all opportunities to influence others. So whether you are part of the ceremony today or not, you have been called by God to lead in some capacity. The reason why is because everybody sitting in this room, everybody logged in online, uh, has the opportunity afforded them to influence others. What does positive influence look like? What, what does it look like? Uh, I think Dr. Kent M. Keith was on to something in 1968 when he came up, up with what are known as the anyway statements. Many of you have heard of this. The anyway statements are the par paradoxical commandments. Not to, by the way, be confused with the Ten Commandments. He came, he came up with the paradoxical commandments. And this is, I believe, uh, what they illustrate. Uh, in a practical way, I believe these paradoxical commandments illustrate what effective, positive influence looks like. Here's what Dr. Keith has to say. He says this in the anyway statements. He says this, 
People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help but may attack you if you do help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. This is what effective influence and leadership looks like. So, so, so if we understand the picture, if we understand what it looks like, then I think the next question that arises is where does it come from? Uh, where, where does this, where does this uh, thing that we have, that hopefully we have, where, where does it come from? Uh, are, are, they, are, are effective leaders and influencers born or are they built? Are they born or are they built? I love what the famous coach Vince Lombardi says about this. Here's what Lombardi says. He says, leaders aren't born, they're made. They aren't born, they're made. And they are made just like anything else through hard work. That's what he says. And, 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 and in his book, in, in his book, uh, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, uh, John C. Maxwell discusses this in the chapter on law number 13, the law of reproduction. In this chapter, Maxwell says that 10% of people become leaders because of natural gifting, while 5% become leaders as a result of crisis. But 85% of leaders become effective leaders because of the influence of another leader. Maxwell says this, I love it, he says, it takes one to know one, to show one, and to grow one. Let me say that again, it takes one to know one, to show one, and to grow one. And that's how uh, this happens. That's where leadership comes from. It is because of the influence that you have received from someone else. I agree with both Lombardi and Maxwell. I believe people may be born with certain unique qualities, but to become an effective leader, they must be built. In other words, they must be nurtured. They must be mentored. They must be encouraged, not discouraged. Encouraged, not discouraged. I pause there because we need to be sure that we're very careful about what we say to our kids. Let me rewind that and say it again. Be very careful about what you communicate to your kids because it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
You start telling them they ain't worth nothing and they too this and they too that and they too slow and they too uh, before you know it. You have influenced them to believe that that's all that they can ever be. So here's, what, here, here's how leaders are built. They're built by communicating, communicating encouragement and not discouragement. Be careful with that. Encourage and don't discourage. And so it's also, it also happens when they are, people are afforded opportunity. Opportunities have to be presented. Doors have to be opened. You have to afford opportunities and then inspire through modeling. That's how we do it. We inspire. I believe this. I believe that we inspire others to be, leader, be leaders based on how we lead. Right? And so it's inspired through modeling, and then they are given the freedom to fail. You have to give people that freedom. Whether the young people, middle-aged people, old people, people have to have the freedom to know that I can fail and it's all right. Because failure oftentimes breed, breeds success down the road. In fact, I don't know anybody that's ever been successful that hadn't failed first. I know I'm speaking for myself. I can say that. I don't know how successful I am today, but I know I've failed a lot in my life. And I, here's the thing about failure. The thing about failure is you learn, hopefully, from your failures. Then they have to be pushed to the limit. Pushed to the limit. Not only pushed to the limit, but challenged beyond their comfort and taught first how to follow. That's how leaders are built. I don't don't know that they're born, but I believe they're built, and I believe that's how they're built is they're taught all those things. And then lastly, and not leastly taught that following comes before leading. So that all of us have to know that we have to follow someone. If we're ever going to be effective leaders, we see it in Jesus. He prays to the Father all throughout his earthly ministry. He goes to the Lord, the Father. He goes to the, he goes to the Father and prays and submits himself to him in, uh, in following him so that he can be an effective leader. If Jesus did it, certainly we have to. The Apostle Paul was all about building leaders. Apostle Paul was. Much of his writings were for that purpose. Much of Paul's writings were for the purpose of building others up. We see this on vivid display in three of his letters known as the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles consist of three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. All three of these letters are from the Apostle Paul nearing the end of his life and written to his young protégés in ministry, Timothy and Titus. Titus was written by Paul to encourage Titus, his brother in the faith, whom Paul had left on Crete to lead the church. Paul had established there during one of his missionary journeys. Paul's second letter to Timothy was written around A.D. 67 uh, before the apostle Paul was put to death. Uh, Paul was imprisoned in Rome and was all alone and abandoned and realized his life was coming to an end. It's in 2 Timothy, by the way, chapter 4, where you get Paul saying this, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And now, henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's what Paul says. It's at the, he says, I'm ready to be offered. I'm ready because I have fought. It's at the end of his, his journey. Uh, and so Paul writes this in the second letter to Timothy. Before he wrote 2 Timothy, though, 
he wrote the letter for which we will focus our attention on today, 1 Timothy. He writes it to encourage Timothy in his responsibility in overseeing the Ephesians and the church at Ephesus. That's what he writes it for. Timothy is a young pastor in Ephesus. Ephesus is a church Paul had planted. He spent three years there. We looked at the letter he wrote to the church on last week. He spent three years there, taught the whole counsel of God, loved the people of the church, proclaimed the gospel to the city. He had seen men come to faith and mature in their faith to become elders and deacons, men who devoted their life to serve God's people, the body of Christ, the church. But Paul was gone from from Ephesus now. He was in prison. He had sent Timothy to carry on what he had started. He sent Timothy to Ephesus to pastor this church. And at the top of Paul's mind, his instructions to Timothy were to make sure that God's word was taught, that people understood it, And there were leaders in the church to ensure that the believers were cared for and that they didn't lose sight of the truth of God's word. That's why he writes 1 Timothy to encourage Timothy to do this. But there was a problem. The gospel was being threatened in Ephesus In the church there, the gospel was under attack. It was being threatened. There were some people inside the church who had started teaching heresy. And Paul knows that Timothy can't meet all the challenges associated with leading the church all by himself. All of us need help. Paul recognizes that Timothy is going to need some help if he's going to be an effective leader. He's going to have to have some effective leaders that are helping him out. So he realizes that he can't do it all alone. So right in the middle of this letter, right in the middle of what he's writing to Timothy about, right in the middle of all of this, Paul will lay out in detail the kind of leaders the church needs kind of leaders the church needs so that he knows that Timothy is going to have to have some help. So while he is writing uh, these words of encouragement and instruction, he lays out in chapter 3 what these deacons and elders need to look like, right? So let's read it. I know you thought, well, we're going to ever read it. Yeah, we're going to read it. Just give me a minute. I got to get through my introduction. Amen. So (laughs) So would you turn with me? To 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read all that chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 16. Here's what it says. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectful, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children uh, submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a, sh- into a share of the devil, to a snare of the devil. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy 
of dishonest gain, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that, to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. I feel like I'm getting ready to close a sermon right here. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. My Lord. So we'll look at this third chapter of Paul's letter to Timothy in sections, as we always do. We'll look at it in sections. First one we'll look at is verse 1, and I've entitled this, uh, from, the, from what Paul writes in verse 1, the noble task. The noble task. So we find this word in chapter 1, overseer. What's meant? What, what's the meaning of this word? What, what is an overseer? The Greek word is episkopos, and it simply means uh, a bishop or an overseer, a leader in the church. It seems to be synonymous with the other two New Testament terms for the office of leadership in a local church. The terms pastor and overseer and elder all refer to the same thing. They are leaders in the New Testament church, and the New Testament church by the way, had only two offices, pastor and deacon, elder and deacon, overseer and deacon, were the only two offices in the New Testament church. And then we look at what, what happens. He says, he says, those that aspire to or desire for this, right? What, what's meant by that? He uses these two words, aspire. It, it simply means to reach out after, to stretch out oneself, to grasp something. The term does not speak of internal motives. There's, there, there's no internal selfish desires or aspirations, but only describes this external act. Desires means a passionate compulsion. There is this passionate compulsion to do this. Together, these words describe somebody who pursues the ministry because of an inner compulsion. It is not so much a drive to be a pastor or an elder. It is a drive and a desire to serve, to serve. You need to hear that. And then listen, while I'm, while I'm going through this, I need you to be reminded that I'm not just talking to the pastors, elders, or the deacons today. I'm talking to all of you because this applies to all of us. Although Paul is laying out here the qualifications of overseer, the qualifications of deacon, I submit to you that all of these same qualifications fit all of us. If we're going to be effective uh, representatives and ambassadors for Christ, we need, to, we need to fall in line with all these qualifications as well. Although you may not ever stand up here and be officially installed in an office in this church or any other church, you have been called Amen. to a level of leadership in the kingdom. And don't just sit there talking about he talking to the deacons and elders today. No, I'm talking to everybody. So was Paul. It fits. 
It was written to Timothy for direction and instruction for the church and the leaders that he would select. But I say to you that it fits everyone. So there's this internal drive. And then he uses this word to describe it, this, this phrase to describe this. He calls it a noble task. And I want to look at that. I want to, I want to kind of look at that. This word noble is kalos in the Greek. It's, it's a beautiful, fair, good, appropriate thing. It means that that's what it is, right? It's beautiful. It's fair. It's good. It's appropriate. It means that this thing that these people aspire to and desire to is good. It's beautiful. So first thing we do is understand that, right? It's noble. But then he also follows that up with saying it's a task. Right. And I want to say this. Anytime one decides to answer the call to service in God's church, in God's kingdom, there will be work involved. I'm saying that to you deacons and elders that's going to stand up here today. Listen, there's work involved. I don't have to say that to you, brothers, because you've already been working. I know you understand that. But to all of you who are listening and thinking that I'm only talking to them and that it doesn't apply to you, and I've already explained that it does, let me give this caveat. As you prepare to accept whatever call God has on your life, you need to know, number one, it's noble, whatever it is, it's beautiful. But then... It won't be easy. It won't be easy. Anytime you deal with, with people. I feel like I need to step down and just get down here with this one. <laughs> Anytime you deal with folk, you better get ready to roll your sleeves up <laughs> and work. But watch, but, 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 remember, he says... It's noble. It's beautiful. So that's what happens in, in verse 1. He describes this noble task. And then in verses 2 through 7, he lays out the qualifications for, for overseer. Verses 2 through 7, the qualifications for overseer. Let's read it real quick. Well, in fact, let's read it. It says this. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And he goes down this long list, right? Now, I just want to talk about some of these qualifications real quick, real quick. Just want to go over them. There are 15 requirements or qualifications that Paul describes in verses 2 through 7. Qualifications for overseer. First, he says, above reproach. What does this mean? It does not mean perfect. It does not mean perfection. This is the key qualification, though, to the entire context for leadership in a local church. Above reproach. It means blameless in behavior. It does not mean perfection or without sin, but it means that there are no grounds for charge or accusation against someone. Godly, respectable, and acceptable. That's what above reproach means because none of us are perfect. All of us should be striving for that. Right. He says husband of one wife. It simply means faithful and attentive to that wife. We could spend a lot of time unpacking that. We don't have time today. Maybe at another time we'll talk more about that because that's one of those that we can talk all day about. Right. Just know that that's the that's the genesis. That's that's the foundation of what Paul is saying, that one should be faithful and attentive to his wife. Sober minded simply means being sensible, balanced, avoid extremes and have a sound mind. 
Self-control, that's kind of self-explanatory. It means that you should be able to control yourself. Right? That's self-explanatory. Respectable means that you avoid worldly lust, that you maintain order and decorum in the way that you live your life. Hospitable means that you're welcoming and inviting. Able to teach means that you're able to rightly divide the word of truth. It doesn't mean that you have to have a seminary degree, but you ought to at least be able to explain the essentials of our faith, and be able to take the Bible and to look at it and understand what God is saying. And if you can't, spend some time in studying it so that you can communicate effectively to those that want to know what the hope is that we have. Right? We ought to be able to do that. So he says they ought to be able to teach, not a drunkard. That's self-explanatory. <laughs> I think. Y'all understand that one, don't you? <laughs> Not a drunkard, <laughs> not violent. <laughs> I don't need to spend much time there, do I? Uh, not violent means able to control your emotions. You all be able to control. Now, listen, I'm talking to the deacons and elders, but it applies and it fits everybody in this room, everybody online. You should, if you're going to be a representative uh, of the kingdom of God, you should be able to control your emotions. Gentle simply means having loving reasonableness, which is uh, prepared to... It, being prepared to yield to others, not quarrelsome, one who does not fight or stir up controversy, does not fight or stir up controversy, does not fight or stir up controversy. I'm just saying, I'm just, I'm just reading the qualifications. Paul wrote these, and they, you know, this was way back then, and it, it seems so relevant, doesn't it? So relevant to today. Not a lover of money. You know that the love of money, not money, but the love of money, Paul writes, is the root of, amen, somebody. You cannot love it so much that you put it ahead of everything else. All of us need it. It's like we need food. But I don't love it. I know it's a necessity. But if I love it, it goes ahead of things, and we can't do that. And then he says, manages his own household well. And here's simply what he means. He means that you can look at, not that anyone in here's household is not dysfunctional. If you say your household is not dysfunctional, you're lying, and the truth is not in you. <laughs> Everybody in here, your story might be different. <laughs> your story, y'all having a little bit too much fun with that. Your story might be different than the person sitting next to you or different than mine, but there is some level of dysfunction in every household represented in this room and watching us online. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's simply saying this, uh, uh, that how one rules his home will show one's tendencies in leading the church. So how do you manage the dysfunction? How do you try to make it as least dysfunctional as possible? Or do you feed the dysfunction? That's what Paul is saying. He says, not a recent convert. Can't be a, a recent convert because there is not enough maturity. And when you're immature in the faith, you're easily persuaded and you're easily tossed to and fro, fro with every wind of doctrine. When you're not mature yet in the faith, you're easily convinced of things that are not truth. And Paul says that to be a leader, it, you, you don't need to be. Although, let me say this, there are still some 
opportunities in the kingdom for new converts. Remember, this is a list for overseer, right? This, this applies to overseer, elders, pastors. They don't need to be, re- I don't need to be trying to pastor nobody if I just got saved last week. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I want to pastor a church. I want to be an elder. That just don't jive, right? He says, not a recent convert. Good reputation with those outside the church. It does not mean that everybody has to like you. But leadership must be, fe- be viewed as honest and genuine by the, believing, by the unbelieving community which the church is trying to bring to faith in Christ. Those that are outside the faith must believe that you have integrity, that you're honest. If you're talking about winning somebody, you can't be attempting to win somebody to something and they have no respect at all for you because they see what you do. I could spend some time there too. We have to be careful about that. We have to have a good reputation outside the church. And then he moves on from qualifications for overseer to qualifications for deacon in verses 8 through 12. And the qualifications for deacon are very similar to the qualifications for overseer. There were 15 listed for overseer. There are 10 listed for deacon. Many of these are very similar. In fact, they're quite similar. In fact, they're so similar that I don't need to necessarily go and break down each one on the list. We'll talk about them briefly. First of all, I want to tell you what a deacon is. Deacon, the the, the Greek word is diakonos. It simply means a servant, someone who has given themselves to service. And Paul says that there's a list of requirements similar to that of an overseer for the deacon. Says the deacon must be dignified. You know what that means? Not double-tongued. You don't tell lies. You don't say one thing and mean the other. Amen, somebody. Not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Very similar to the other list. Hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You must be tested. You must have gone through some things. You need need to have gone through some things, right? Uh, You must be blameless. Again, not perfect, but blameless. Dignified wives you have to have. Now, I know you're saying, I can't control what my wife does. (laughs) I hear you saying that to me right now. That's not what Paul is saying. It's simply saying... (laughs) Boy, y'all laughing now. I got to let me, let me pause. Y'all can get that laugh out. You can't, and that's true. You can't control it. But watch this. The way you lead in your home will, 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 will show itself in the church, and the way you lead in your home will hopefully have an, a positive and effective impact on the wife so that the wife represents dignity as you represent dignity. Because what, if I earn your respect as your husband, if I earn your respect, then you are going to conduct yourself in a respectful way, whether you and I disagree disagree at home or not. Because if there's any married couple in here that says you don't disagree, ever, we need to have a talk after church so we can lay hands on your heart, your deceitful lips, because it's not true. Anybody has disagreements. <laughs> Everybody has. That's not what Paul, Paul's saying. You, 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 he's not saying that you need to be a, be a controller. But he's simply saying the way you live will show in the way your family conducts themselves. Husband or one wife. We talked about that already. 
managing his children and house well, similar to the qualifications for overseer, right? These are the qualifications for deacon. And then we drop down to verse 13. And in verse 13, we get what I like to call the gain. What's the, what's the, what's the, what's the benefit of all of this? In verse 13, we see it. Verse 13, he says this. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The gain is where we find is what we find in verse 13. He says this is this is the benefit. This is what happens. Men who fulfill this servant role faithfully gain two things. Number one, they gain an excellent standing before their fellow Christians an excellent standing before their fellow Christians, respect in the church along with good standing in, good, in God's sight is what happens. Uh, and then they gain not only that, but they gain a greater assurance of their faith, a greater assurance of their faith. Uh, the faith is encouraged and strengthened. Humble service, which lacks rewards according to the world's standards, gives you a greater assurance of who you belong to and your purpose in life. Through fulfilling this calling, your faith will grow. That's any calling. We're talking about deacons here, but that's any calling. When you do it faithfully, you will reap the benefit of your faith being strengthened. You will more firmly believe what you believe. You will more firmly be committed to what you believe. Your faith, that's the game. That's what happens. That's the benefit. That is the benefit package, right? And so then he deals with the gain, and then in verses 14 and 15, we see a so that. 15, 14 and 15, there's a so that, and here's what it says. 14 and 15 says this. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, you know, that means this is the reason why I'm, I'm writing these things. There's a so that there's so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul planned to come to Ephesus soon, but he writes this letter to Timothy in case he's delayed. He writes it so that he can give. Number one, instruction on proper ecclesiology. Because look at what he says. He says, so you know how to behave <laughs> in the church, right? That, that, that's ecclesiology. He says, I wanna, I'm, I'm writing this so that if I don't make it, I want you to understand, Timothy, what proper ecclesiology looks like. He says that you should conduct yourselves properly, uh, how to operate leadership, how leadership operates in the overall operation of the church. He says that, and then he says, not only that, but I want to give you the right, not just ecclesiology, but I want to help you understand the theology of the church. He says this, he says in verse uh, 14, he says, uh, the household of God, 15 rather, household of God, which is the church of the living God. The in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The household of God, which is the church. Of, this is the theology of our church. Uh, who is the head of the church? Who's the head of the church? Paul says, remember, Timothy, who is the head of the church? It is the, the church of the living God, the household of God, the church of the living God, as opposed to the church of you, <laughs> as opposed to the church of the dead God. 
as opposed to all of those things, this is our theology. We serve a risen Savior. He is risen. He's alive. And he rests and rules over his church. And Paul says, let me help you with how you do church ecclesiology. Let me help you with why you do church theology. And then he ends it with, let me help you with what you do while you're in church missiology. This is what he says. He says this at the end of verse 15. He says, here's what the church is, a pillar and a buttress of truth. A pillar and buttress of truth. Uh, the, 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 the missiology is the reflective discipline that undergirds and guides the church's propagation endeavors as it advances the knowledge of the gospel in all its fullness to every people everywhere so that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. That's our job. That's our mission, to share the truth of the gospel. And that be our pillar, that that be our standard. Paul says that's our mission. Timothy, don't forsake it. And then lastly, in verse 16, he has shared with us the so that, the benefit. He closes with the church's confession. I love it. The church's confession in verse 16. I'm going to read it again. I love it. And every time I read it, I feel like, you know, but I'm not. Here's what Paul says. Great indeed, we confess. It's the church's confession. We, the church's confession, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. This is the church's confession, the once hidden but now revealed mystery of godliness which provides the church with confirmation, inspiration, and motivation. This was what what Paul quotes here is it was a hymn that was sung by the church in Paul's day affirming the good news about Jesus Christ. It lays out the things that must we must believe that we must believe about Christ in order to properly represent him in this world. That's what this hymn does. So Paul says he was manifested in the flesh, talking about and referring to his incarnation. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. It refers to the fact that he was declared by the Father as his beloved Son and empowered by the Spirit to perform supernatural works and raised from the dead in victory. Then he says he was seen by angels. It's a reference to the fact that heavenly beings all throughout the course of every stage of his life were present and witnessed and were there for his birth, for his ministry, for his resurrection, for his crucifixion, for all of that. Angels were present, proclaimed among the nations. It's talking about the proclamation of the gospel to the world, believed in the world. Paul simply says that people place their faith in him for salvation all over the world, taken up in glory, refers to his ascension. And so then, Paul helps us to see this picture of what leadership ought to look like in the church. 
And he gives us some reasons why we should accept the call to leadership, not just deacons and elders, but all of us, because we have this great confession. And as we wrap up with discussing building leaders and prepare to commission these men for service and, issue, and, and, we, and we're issuing this clarion call to leadership to each of you, it's good to be reminded that along with everything else Christ represents, he's also our model for servant leadership. He's our model for servant leadership. Paul says, uh, let this mind be in you. It was also in Christ Jesus. He says in saying that, that Jesus Christ is our model for servant leadership. It brings to mind a story about a man who fell into a pit. A man fell into a pit and couldn't get himself out. A subjective person came along and said, I feel for you down there. An objective person walked by and said, it's logical that someone would fall down there. A Pharisee said, only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician calculated how deep the pit was. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. All of y'all know people like that. A fire and brimstone preacher came by and said, you deserve your pit. A Christian scientist observed and said, the pit is just in your mind. A psychologist noted your mother and father are the blame for you being in that pit. An optimist said things could be worse. A pessimist claimed things will get worse. But then Jesus came by. Jesus came by seeing the man in the pit. He took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. And all I'm saying to you today is that Jesus is our model for servant leadership. True servant leadership can be seen in Jesus. Amen, somebody. God bless you and God keep you. This is my prayer.